Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the word to Genesis chapter 35. We'll read the whole of the chapter. Beginning in verse 1, let's hear God's word, let's hear the word of Moses. The last great uh, chapter of Jacob. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. Well, they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at her hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Ben-Yamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, God, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. He died. He was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. And ask his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his word. Father, we pray that you would renew us like you did Jacob. 
that your grace would come to us in our hour of weakness and trial. He would strengthen us in our ordinary life. And we ask this as your people, your sheep. Be our shepherd. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When did you get saved? Sometimes he asks this question to people. When did you get saved? What was the, the hour of the day? When did you become a Christian? When did you become a Christian? This is kind of the end of the story of Jacob. He'll be around until the end of the book of Genesis, but this is the last chapter. He's a main character. If you were to ask Jacob, Jacob, when did you get saved? When were you converted? What would he say? It's funny, when you read through the book of Genesis, you come to points where you might say, oh, that's the day, that's the hour. Here, here is where Jacob was totally transformed. The ladder at Bethel. Maybe more commonly, the wrestling at Peniel. Others say this chapter, this last chapter, finally Jacob is really saved here. A lot of times we're tempted by this question, when were you saved? We're tempted because we believe mistakenly that salvation is something that only happens at one point in time. One point in our lives and never has anything to do afterwards. You get saved, that's it. Now, let me be very clear here. One time only in our lives, we are made new from above by the Holy Spirit. But if conversion is repentance and faith in Christ, then that does not just happen one time. The old Puritans would speak about the entire Christian life as one of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And that's really what the life of Jacob shows us in full display. When is Jacob saved? Here's the answer. Almost every chapter. When is Jacob converted? Almost every chapter, almost every point, he has shown his frailty, he's shown his weakness, he's shown his sin, he's shown God's grace, he renews himself to that God, he believes in you, he's restored to the God of the covenant. That is Jacob's life, and that's your life. You know, some of y'all know people who, if asked, when were you saved, they have a card. They pull their wallet out, they have a card, they show it to you. Some of y'all, if you ask people, um, they'll say, yeah. I walk the aisle and I know the day, I know the hour. I can point to it. Every year, I have my Christian birthday. It's when I got my Christian name. But have you met folks who believe that? They can show you the card. They don't have the Christian life. They're not walking with the Lord. They don't believe in the need to repent and believe. You see, friends, life as the people of God is a constant call to make the God of the covenant the center of your world. That's why the New Testament speaks over and over again of salvation, not simply in the past tense, but in the present tense, in the future tense. So we come this hour to see Jacob saved again, saved here. You'll have four points you'll find, at least as far as the outline I have for us. Um, we'll assume that's generally all right. It's a decent outline for the, for the chapter. We see first here God's invitation, his invitation to Jacob. You recall last week, Jacob, chapter 34, a brutal chapter, not one you'll read to the kids too often. But he failed. He failed as a leader in his family. He failed as a leader of the tribe. His daughter, Dinah, defiled his son's massacre, a whole city. And then Jacob says, hey, don't do this because they might kill me. I'm scared. He's fearful. He had been fearful of Esau, his brother. Now he's scared of the, the pagan cities around. Same kind of fear. And then God shows up. Verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, 
and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God says, hey, go back to Bethel. Come back to Bethel. Go there and we will renew the covenant together. God sends a gracious invitation to a failed loser of a man. It's a beautiful character trait of our God. We've seen it over and over again with Abraham and Isaac. If you want to see the grace of God, read the Old Testament more. That sounds a little counterintuitive in our day where um, the popular notion of the Old Testament, God is a meanie. And then Jesus comes nice in the New Testament. Even though nothing in the Bible supports that kind of division. Instead, this book has shown us, we've been in it for a few months, we've seen here the underbelly, the dark underbelly of God's people, the good and the bad, the ugly. And if God wanted to, he could have said at any point to these folks, I'm out of here. Enough. You have forsaken my covenant. I'm out. Instead, God says that God takes the initiative. He comes. He invites Jacob. He says, go to Bethel. You meet with me. I'll come to my house, the house of God. I'll be with you. It's a gracious offer of amazing grace to an amazingly sinful man. It's the heart of the gospel. He tells Jacob to rise, to make this altar, and he will meet him there. You see, friends, if you only read the naughty part of the Old Testament and you're shocked by the sin there, you prove you have not read the Old Testament. You've not read these stories. You've not read them in their fullness, in the gracious notes that they show in the same stories. And if you do that, we think, really, we don't sin that much. If we, don't, if we miss the grace on offer here, we think our sin is not that bad. But friends, what holds us together as a church is that we are a sinful people who have come in need of Jesus Christ. The only thing that brings us together is not some hobby that we have. I mean, for one thing, I'm not really a UGA or a tech fan. What brings us together is not a hobby or an interest. What brings us together, what binds us together is the gracious initiative of God given to us. That's what we acknowledge today as we come today. We bring our sin to our salvation. It's funny because after Shechem, Jacob may have thought, I've blown it. But God says, Jacob, go back to Bethel. Bethel was the place where the real relationship of Jacob with God had begun. It's where the ladder, the staircase had been made between heaven and earth, where Jacob consecrated himself to the Lord. It was the most precious spot in many ways for Jacob. And God's saying, go back there. Go back there and build the altar. This is the only command, by the way, in verse 1. The only command in the book of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis. There are lots of altars in the book of Genesis that are built. But this is the only command ever given by God to build an altar. The only time somebody is told by God to build an altar. You see how gracious God is that he even gives the command to Jacob. He says, you need to make a fresh start. It's not just a command. It's an invitation to start anew, to begin again. Go back to Bethel. I'll be there. Now, literally, the geography is that Jacob will have to travel upwards about a thousand feet. But there's more than geography to the command. Jacob is moving from the valley of the shadow of death, from Shechem, from evil, from failure. He's moving to the highlands the mountain of fellowship with God, with a gracious God. And friends, that may be a call you need to hear today. Do you have a Bethel in your life? Do you have a place you can go to for some fall cleaning, for some soul work, some spiritual renewal? You know, for some folks, that's the place of our conversion. We do have a Christian birthday, and we, we want to go back to it. That time when God called you back to him. 
Maybe it's the place where you felt God's presence near and dear. And you think about that place all the time. You think back upon your Christian life. Maybe you can remember solemn vows, for formal vows in a church, or you can remember solemn vows you took by your bedside, that you, you committed yourself that day and that year, that time, to the Lord. You were aware that God was with you. Maybe you're not so aware today. Maybe you've lost a bit of your edge. Maybe you lost a bit of your vision, your focus. Maybe the book, this word, has become dead to you. You're not, you're reading it, but the words just go in and out. Maybe your prayer is no longer as vital, as rich, as fruitful as they once were. They're just rote and dull now. You think back. You think back to the Bethel you went to in that time. You think back and there wasn't a day that didn't go by when you didn't tell people about Jesus Christ. But now months can go by, weeks can go by, and you don't talk to folks about Jesus. Have you slipped? But whatever your situation, I don't know what your situation is, whatever your situation is, God says, here, Bethel, my presence, right now, a glorious invitation. And yet, second, we see here that there's consecration, there's preservation, verses 2 to verse 8. Jacob realizes that this is not just a geographical trip. It's not just a move. It's an actual spiritual cleaning that needs to take place. And yet he realizes, and, and he should realize, and we should realize, it's not really the Bethel that's important. It's not the place that's important. It's what Bethel symbolizes. It's true for all of us. We have a problem sometimes that we look to the place and the time where God was working. We looked at the conference we went to that was so amazing. We looked at the teacher we learned under, the Sunday school class we attended for those really key years. It was so vital. We looked at the principle we learned that really has changed our life forever. We looked at the preacher. We looked to the thing. We looked to the person. We don't pursue God himself. None of those things matter if God is not in it. None of those things matter. If God is not in it, going back to Bethel itself by itself will not produce blessing. Going back to that book that you read that was really impactful, reading that book again by itself will not do anything. Going to that conference, going to that friend, going to that place will not do it. That's why why people go to the Grand Canyon, you know. They go to the Grand Canyon because it's a beautiful, natural scene. And they they say, oh, I I had a moment there. I want to go back there. I felt right there. Friends, if you felt right there, it wasn't the Grand Canyon. Not spiritually speaking, it was the Lord. The blessing is not attached to the place. It's attached to the God of the place, the God who is there. And Jacob understands this because he knows he cannot go to Bethel as he is. He knows he has to change. Verse 2, he tells his household these things. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your clothes, change your garments. The good luck charms must go. We see at the very uh, end of the paragraph, verse four, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings that, that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was at Shechem. Isn't that great? Jacob buries them. It's a beautiful picture. He digs a hole and he buries these little idols. Remember those idols? The ones that Rachel took from her dad? She had sat on them. She had hid them. But she hadn't hadn't ever actually gotten rid of them. They're still here. And yet Jacob now buries them. I mean, these are the gods that they looked to. These are the, the temptations they had. What kind of pathetic gods are they if they can be sat on, hidden, 
buried. It's a very sad existence for these gods. Kind of pathetic. You could just bury the god. And so Jacob calls them to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart. This is what happens every Sunday, I hope you know, that you are renewed. You, are, you have a Bethel every time you come here. Your heart is renewed. You set yourself apart. You're set apart by God. You are consecrated by God. Why do we need it if we're Christians, if we're saved people? I think Matthew Henry has a great quote at this point. He says, in families where there is an altar for God, sometimes there are more strange gods than one might expect. There are more strange gods than one might expect. Friends, where's your love going instead of Christ? Where are these little gods that, you know, they're, they're, they're small. They've been with you for years. They're besetting sin. You know, this, it's just an issue you kind of have. You haven't dealt with it. What are those habits that define you? Bury them. The call here is very simple. Bury them. There will be no battle. There will be no amazing Christian spiritual moment until they're buried. And then come to the blood of the Lamb. For the washed heart and the changed clothes. Most of us want a Bethel God without the idols getting buried. I think if there's a common kind of Christian tack we love to take, it's the tack of I want the God experience without the idols having to get buried in the dirt. That's the temptation, the glory of God without the giving up of anything. It doesn't work that way. It never has. It never will work that way. And what's fascinating here is what Jacob does. Jacob, a chapter ago in Shechem, he didn't do anything. He was weak. He didn't care for his defiled daughter, Dinah. But now a change has occurred. He calls the family together. He says, we're going to meet God in Bethel. And before we do that, certain things have to happen here. God's merciful, God's gracious, God's open and willing to forgive, but that doesn't change the fact that he is holy. God is gracious and God is holy. He's both and. And somehow they need to be cleaned up to stand in God's presence. So he says, let's change our clothes. Let's change our clothes. Let's put away our gods. Why why do they need to change our clothes? I mean, what's the big deal about just taking your, you know, Sunday suit off and putting on the Monday clothes. What's the big deal about change of clothes? It's a symbolic action. It's very common in the Old Testament. You see all the time. When you're mourning, what do you do? You put on clothes. You put on sackcloth. You put on ashes on your head. You symbolically show on your outside what's on the inside. You show on the outside what's on the inside. This is what the early church did. You know the membership class in the early church, the catechumenate? It was a whole year-long process. A year-long membership class. Thankful we don't have that today. And at the end, on Easter Sunday, the new members at sunrise, they were taken to the church. They were told to disrobe. They denounced Satan and all his works three times. And they were baptized in the nude. Then they were given fresh white clothes. And they were able to partake of communion on Easter Sunday for the very first time. Now, we don't do it that way for many good reasons. Many biblical and appropriate reasons. Uh, But there's something that they understood in the early church that we don't always understand, which is simply that there is a change. It's the language of Paul. Put off, put on. Put off sin. Put on love. And Jacob's saying, we've had divided hearts and we need some spring cleaning. You'll notice also they took their earrings off. Why the earrings? Is there like a secret jewelry? Is this a Lord of the Rings issue? You know, you don't want to have the ring. Well, 
think the clue is found in the very next time earrings are taken off. The next time earrings and nose rings are taken off in the Bible is at Mount Sinai. What does Aaron do with the earrings? He says, people of Israel, Moses is way up there. I don't know what's happening with him. Let's take off our earrings. Let's take off our rings. Take off our jewelry. Let's melt them down and let's make the gods who saved us. Let's make a golden idol, a golden calf. You see, taking off the ring in this instance means there's no going back. What's the temptation of the earring? It's not the earring. It's the temptation is you take the gold and you melt it to make an idol. The earring's not the issue. It's the fact there's a temptation to go back. Temptation to go back. That's why, friends, the picture we have here of repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. I'm really, really, really sorry. I feel really, really, really sorry on the inside. But it's, I feel sorry on the inside, and there's an outside change. True repentance is therefore saying what you've committed. Feeling bad, yes, but taking the things that stumble you and remove them from your life. Jacob is removing any access to a false god. It's not the earrings that are the issue. Psalm 45 talks all about the, the bride of, of the king decked out in diamonds and jewels. It's the temptation to make a golden god in place of the Lord. That's why Paul can tell us in the New Testament that sorrow of heart is fine. But there's a sorrow that we call repentance that's just worldly regret. It leads to death. That's why feeling bad and saying sorry is not genuine Christian faith but active removal of those things that you count on for safety, for life, for comfort, more than just a sad day at the office. And then we see, of course, that God preserves. They have to run the gauntlet. It's 30 miles to Bethel, a thousand feet up. They have to run a gauntlet of all these people who hate them because Simeon and Levi just massacred a whole city. They killed all the guys. You don't want those people around. So the pagans all around are going to say, hey, let's kill Jacob. And Jacob could be scared of that. But you'll notice verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. What happens? God preserves and there's a divine terror. I don't know what that is. It's possible. I would say likely it could have very well been the angel of the Lord who went before Jacob. It's a very similar incident. It's the Exodus Chapter 23, verse 25, when God tells Moses, I'll send my angel ahead of you and make all your enemies run. And we're told they run in terror. I think it's likely that the angel of the Lord's there. But the point simply is, God preserves Jacob from his enemies, from what he's scared about. Right through the middle of the presence of Jacob's enemies, God is with him. What does that mean for us? Does this mean that if you... Repent if you bury your idols, if you hide them in the dirt. As a Christian, you'll never have trouble. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Here's the point. Obeying God in the long run will not harm you. It's a very simple point. Obedience to God in the long run will not harm you. And God may be asking you to do something today, and you can think about the problems. You're really good at pointing out the problems. You're really easy seeing the issues, the difficulties, the challenges. But ultimately, God will preserve you in his way for his designs. Even if you have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, God will be with you. As one writer has put it, the Christian who is obeying God is invincible. Third, not just an invitation, not just consecration, preservation, but third, we see here 
revelation that's confirmed. A confirmation, verse 9 to verse 15. We read that Jacob, they come to Bethel, they get there finally, and then what happens? God appears to Jacob, verse 9, and he blesses him. This is the last direct revelation to any of the patriarchs we have. The final time God comes and speaks to any of them. It's the fullest revelation Jacob has experienced in his whole life. And it comes, noticeably, it comes on the far side of sin and weakness and failure and reconsecration. We get, actually, very similar language. Verse 10, God says, hey, I'm going to rename you. I thought he already did that. Did it not stick? What is God doing here? He's echoing his promise. This whole thing is an echo of what's gone before. God is reconfirming his promise. Not because he didn't say it loud enough last time. Not because he didn't work hard enough on Jacob last time. Not because Jacob's sin got him out of the promise or something like that. Or got him out of fellowship with God in some uh, uh, lingo. But rather, God repeats his promises because we're forgetful. And we're hard of hearing. God comes to Jacob and says, you're Israel. Don't forget it. You're Israel. And then verse 11, it says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. That's the, the, the echo of the promise given to Abraham way back in Genesis 17. He had said to Jacob's granddad, I am God Almighty. Now he does to Jacob. It's fascinating, isn't it? That despite Jacob's sinfulness, despite his seeking, despite his searching to get his own way, God has been faithful to save Jacob. But more than just being nice to Jacob, God is changing him and transforming him. He's giving him grace for the future. And this tells us, friends, that God does not just forgive your sins so you can live how you like. God saves you to make you a holy people. He saves you to serve him. He repeats a beautiful future. He repeats the promise of a beautiful future to this guy, weak as he is, because God is the God who keeps his word. Whether you can feel it or not, this is your life as a Christian. This is your life. You need the same thing that Jacob needed. You need to know your real name, your new name. You need to know your Christian name. This is why you come to church. This is why you ought to come to church and get out of bed Sunday morning. You don't come here to get education and get more information. You don't come here to sing songs because God needed, needs your voice. Otherwise, he won't be happy. Man, you do come to honor God, but you come supremely because God says, I'm here to meet you. This is Bethel. Every Sunday is Bethel Sunday. This is the house of God every Sunday. God remains the same, not because the walls are special, but because God promises to repeat his promise over and over again every week. His word is sure to you today as it was last week. The promises he declares in Christ, better ones than these. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He comes to you today that you might have confidence in him because his promises are signed in the blood of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. Jacob's made plenty of mistakes. He's failed God on numerous occasions, but God is still there. And that tells you, friends, when you come back to God, God is gracious. When you bury the foreign gods, God meets with you again. He confirms to you the promises that you have known for many years, but he, he makes them shine more deeply. All your sins are forgiven. They're dealt with. We know that up here. 
But God makes it hit home in our hearts again. That you're going to be fruitful as a Christian. You're going to be useful as a Christian. You're going to be useful in the world as a Christian. Jacob had not been useful at Shechem. He brought chaos and havoc and death. But God will make him a blessing. As he says in verse 11, a nation and a company of nations will come from you. King shall come from your own body. He will give to him that line. He will give to him that blessing. He will do it for the world. And that's your promise, friends. Your promise that God will use you. He will work through you. And that finally, we come to the rest of the chapter. That's this beautiful, this beautiful picture of renewal. This beautiful picture of going to Bethel, of returning to God. What's going to happen now? It's fascinating. We have that this, the first half of the chapter is all glorious and beautiful. And, and uh, there's, there's faith and repentance and, and the promises are given again. And then we have kind of a, a, a potpourri of a chapter, a potpourri of the, the second half of the chapter. This happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. What's the connection here? I think part of the connection is how you live every day after. I mean, what happens when to you when you come to Bethel? What happens to you when you return to God? What happens to a woman who repents and returns? What happens to a man who, who has that restored relationship? Are you going to have a, a, a totally new life? Are you going to have unbroken happiness? Your kids will all be happy and smiley. You'll make all sorts of friends. No. No is the answer. You'll have ordinary life. Jacob's life continues the way it had been. That's the point of this last half of the chapter. Beautiful spiritual high, spiritual experience, and then ordinary life. First, he goes through sorrow. He goes through sorrow. You see it here? Deborah? Verse 8, Rebecca's nurse died. We'll notice that Rebecca is the only matriarch who doesn't get her death notice in the, in the, in the Bible. That may be an indication that her last action of sending Jacob away was not quite the faithful action that she could have, uh, she could have taken. We get her nurse dies. But supremely, the great sorrow here is verse 16 and verse uh, 17. Rebecca, the beloved wife, uh, Rachel, the, the beloved wife, she goes into labor. She has hard labor, challenging labor. She dies. She dies. And yet, as she dies, what happens? She gives birth. She gives birth. It's full of irony here. Remember Rachel and her anger in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. She had said to Jacob, give me children or I die. And in tragic irony, both happens. She gets a child, and then she dies. God adds to her another son, but Jacob has the love of his life. The woman he had loved has now died. His heart's broken. We know his heart's broken, of course, not just from experience, but from what he says on his deathbed. Genesis 48, verse 7, he says, that, To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. He remembered the place where she had died. And yet, he has a choice here. He has, a, he has a real choice to make here. In his everyday life, he has sorrow and he has grief after some marvelous spiritual experience, and he has a choice to make. What's his choice? Look at the name Rachel gives. Verse 18. As she was dying, she calls this son 
Ben Oni. You know what it means? It means son of my sorrow. It means also uh, son of misfortune. Son of my sorrow. Son of misfortune. That's how Rachel sees her child. As she's dying. Unfortunate one. Sad son. And Jacob has a decision to make. His beloved wife is dead. His child has taken her life. Her last words are, this son is my sorrow. And he can either live with her reality in mind. He can either live under her story. This son caused all the trouble in the world. This is an awful son. This son killed my wife. He is a misfortunate, sorrowful son. He can use and believe the narrative, the story spun by his wife. Or he can believe the promise of God. God had promised, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 11, a nation shall come from you. And here's the promise given. A son is born. And so Jacob had the choice to make. In one of the most painful moments in anybody's life, when the beloved spouse, the wife dies, he can either say, yes, you're an awful son because of what you did to Rachel. Or he can say, I'm going to call you a son of blessing. That's what he does. He calls him Benjamin. Son of my right hand. The only way Jacob can do that is by trusting the God of the covenant who promises things that are not often delivered in this life. We're used to getting delivery in two days because of Amazon Prime. But God's promises are not often delivered in two days. They're not often delivered in this life. Jacob loses his wife. His mother is dead. His dad Isaac dies. But he is able to say, this God is the God of Bethel. Verse 7, he builds an altar. He calls the place El Bethel. God, the house of God. This God is the God of Bethel. He looks around. He sees sorrow. But he also looks around. He sees joy. Ordinary human sorrow. Ordinary human joy. The birth of a son, a long-for son. Benjamin, joy, who will become the beloved son. We'll know that in the, with Joseph in the future. And yet there's sorrow. There's joy. And then smack dab in the middle of Jacob's ordinary life, after his amazing spiritual high, there's tragedy. There's tragedy here. You see it in verse 22. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is a tragedy here. Bilhah was Rachel's servant. Reuben was Leah's son. This was a power play on Reuben's behalf. Reuben, as soon as Rachel dies, Reuben defiles her servant. Why? Two reasons. First, he doesn't want Bilhah to become the new favorite wife. But it's also a power play to usurp Jacob's place. It's what Absalom will do centuries later when he rebels against his father David. He will do the same thing with his father's concubines. It's a cruel act of revenge to grab the throne. It will disqualify Reuben. You'll notice, just as a side note, we get a list of the sons of Jacob. The first three, the sons of Leah, have already disqualified themselves. Reuben, the firstborn now, Simeon and Levi, last chapter. We'll see Judah down the road. What's the point here? The point is, everyday, ordinary Christian life. Your life will have joy. Many joys, I hope. Your life will have tragedy. I hope not like Reuben, but it may have tragedy like that. It will have sorrow and grief. 
And all of this can and all this does happen after some marvelous work of grace by God in your life. After going to Bethel, a fresh start for Jacob does not make him immune to human life. This is your Christian life, friends. You are called to make the choice Jacob must make. Do I let sorrow rule the day, Benoni, or do I call my son trusting God's promise, even though I can't see it? All I have is a, my dead wife in front of me. Do I call him Benjamin because I trust that God is blessing even in tragedy? It's a dilemma you all face. We can live by sight with death and say, death is my life. We live in a death world. You can live by sight with sin and tragedy and have momentary joys and then sorrow. And you will say, if this is Jesus Christ, I had that great spiritual experience. I got saved. I got uh, God was really there. And now years in the road now, months in the road, he's not here. If that's what Jesus Christ brings, I'm out of here. For you can recognize that the promises of God will never be fully given until the new creation. But friends, whatever happens, Christ promises to be with you. He'll be with the Rachels. He'll be with the Benjamins. He'll be with the Isaacs who die. Some of you have had to bury spouses and parents. Some of you have had the betrayal of a son or a daughter like Reuben. Whatever the case may be, God is still there. God remains faithful. That's the message of Jacob's life, that God carries out his purposes. And the message you need to hear today, friends, it doesn't really matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter, really, how weak you are. It doesn't matter if you don't have as many talents or gifts. You don't have the winning smile. You don't have those things that other people have. They don't really matter when it comes to God. In a sense, it doesn't even matter the mistakes you make. God is faithful. God's faithful. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Will it bring a tragedy? Will it bring a joy? Will it bring a sorrow? We don't know. But God's with you. And God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make this a Bethel. That you would be here as we know you are. As you promised to be. That you would give us the eyes of faith to see and to trust and to obey. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ who is promised to be with us, who has sent a spirit to dwell within us, that we might have strength for the week ahead. Lord, give us that faith through the sorrow, through the joy, through the tragedy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.